The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, UCI Conversation listeners. This is your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, welcoming you to the first show of the quarter and do I have a really big show lined up for you? My special guest today is UCI astronomer, Professor Paul Robertson. And get this, he is an expert in searching for planets that are outside of our solar system. These types of planets are called exoplanets, and we're just going to jump right into it with both feet. So welcome, Professor Robertson. How are you today? I'm great, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to, to talk about this with you and your listeners. Super. Before we get into the nitty gritty, sir, please tell us where you grew up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Sure. I uh, grew up in North Carolina, so about as far away from California as you can be in the U.S. Uh, I grew up enjoying, I love sports. Uh, I love uh, music. I, I'm a saxophone player. Uh, and I love uh, being out in nature. Uh, being being here in California has been great. It's given me a chance to to learn to surf, which is something I've always wanted to do, but never lived close enough to the ocean. Wow, fantastic! And do you get, still get ch- time to play the saxophone? I know you know in your demanding fields, it, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, I wish I had more time for it. I, I don't play as regularly as I should, but it's one of those things I always. Kind of tell myself I'm going to get back to it, and and I hope one day I will. Um, very good. When did you start getting interested in astronomy? I got excited about astronomy from a young age. I was probably around ten years old, and I remember uh, watching on PBS there was a, a documentary about uh, the Voyager spacecraft going to the outer solar system and getting all these fantastic pictures of the outer planets: Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune. And it was around the same time, uh, you know, early to mid '90s, that the the first exoplanets were being discovered, and and there was a Nobel Prize awarded for this uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, and so that the combination of those two things, uh, me seeing the Voyager images and then learning about this uh, new field of exoplanets opening up, I, I really decided uh, very early on that I said that's what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, and it's honestly kind of amazing that I've had the opportunity to really do that. I, I kind of can't believe it. Uh, but yeah, it started young and, and my parents were very supportive. They bought me a telescope and 
my dad would drag me out at three in the morning to look at <laughs> Jupiter and everything like that. Uh, very cool. And was it just normal, natural for you to go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for your undergrad? It was. Uh, they had uh, a good program for physics and astronomy. Uh, they had access to telescopes that uh, I was actually able to uh, work on as an undergraduate. I got involved with research and uh, actually went down to uh, Chile in South America where uh, our telescope was and, and got to spend some time hands on there as well. And so all of that just sort of uh, fed what was already a, a strong passion for space and astronomy. Yeah. So in your in your undergrad, you got to go down to Chile. I did. It was kind of terrifying. There was an instrument that some of our faculty at North Carolina had built and it, it needed somebody to actually go put hands on it and make some adjustments. Uh, and I had never done anything like that, but I, I had meetings with the principal investigator of the uh, instrument. And uh, he sat me down right before we left in our last meeting. And he said, listen, uh, this instrument cost a million dollars to build, but the most damage you could cause in a single swoop is only like a hundred thousand dollars. And that's not a big enough number to, that it should scare you. And I, I said, are you kidding me? That number is you know, more than my entire worth several times over. Um, so that was my first experience uh, at a telescope doing things like that. And it was fantastic. You know, up in the Andes mountains, the views are indescribable. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you majored in physics, mathematics. Was that just the formal name for astronomy or was that like, oh, you knew where you wanted to go. And so and that was the vehicle to get there. Right. So if you want to be an astronomer, what you really have to study is physics. Uh, astronomy is just a, a sub-discipline of the broader field of physics. And, and some undergrad programs offer a dedicated astronomy major and, and others like North Carolina will do a physics major, maybe with a concentration in astronomy, which means you take some astronomy classes, you get a little bit of proficiency with that. And the mathematics major was just that I felt so lost in my physics classes that I needed to take a little more math to know what was going on. I've actually been taking some math courses over the last year, Professor, and I totally appreciate it. I mean, I know you were at a much higher level, but it's like it's when you go back to it after many years away, it's like, wow, I mean, I, I, I like math, but it was very challenging. Yeah, it's very much like a language. If you if you come back to it after a long time away uh, and you're out of practice, then then it can really seem overwhelming, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you decide what grad school you'd go to? I got some advice from my undergrad research mentors, and um, it's it's kind of like um, a shopping or something. You you apply to programs because you've heard good things, or somebody recommends them to you. Uh, but the programs that actually accept you for uh, programs like a, a physics or astronomy PhD program, a lot of times they'll actually fly you out, and they have a, a dedicated weekend. Uh, and of course, this is one of the, the things that we've lost to COVID a little bit, but you actually get to go and meet the people that you'd be working with and meet the students that you'd potentially be going to school with. Um, and so I had a really great time at Texas and I, I met the people that eventually end up, ended up mentoring my dissertation research and they, they were fantastic. And I, I knew that's where I wanted to be. And this is the University of Texas at Austin? That's right. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, I noticed that your degree was in astrophysics. 
Is there a difference between astrophysics and astronomy, or is it the same? For all intents and purposes, it's the same. There are people who will tell you that you call astronomy the observational side of it, and, and astrophysics is where you're at a chalkboard working out equations theoretically, but that distinction is so razor thin that most people don't even pay attention to it. Gotcha. How about exoplanets? Do you know where that name came from? Yeah, exoplanets is just a mashup of the words extrasolar planets. So extrasolar means the planets orbit some star other than the sun. And so so that's just a, a term of convenience. So when you graduated in 2013 uh, from Texas, where did you go initially? Yeah, I, I left Texas and I went to Penn State University. Uh, they were partners in the same telescope that I had done my dissertation research on, the 10-meter Hobby Eberly Telescope in Texas. Uh, and they were in the process of building a new instrument for that telescope that was exactly the, the kind of instrument that I wanted to further my research. And so I had reached out to them sometime before and said, hey, uh, are you looking for somebody yet to, to do research with this instrument? And they said, no, we're, we're too busy trying to get this thing built. But they reached out a few months later and said, hey, how about you, you come on up and help us, help us build this thing? And if you come and do that, then, then you'll get an opportunity to do your research on it when it's finished. And I didn't have a whole lot of experience with that kind of hands-on uh, instrumentation building, but it was too good an offer to pass up. And, and so I went there and, and got involved. Gotcha, gotcha. Hey, just to backtrack a, a little bit, when you went to that telescope in Chile, how did the, you know, you, you were briefed <laughs> before you left. How did the, uh, you know, the refinement go on the work down there? Yeah, that, that's actually, it, it got even scarier from there. <laughs> we flew down to Chile and they basically threw us in a pickup truck and drove us up the mountain. Uh, and we, we got into the telescope. I, I'm still kind of awestruck because I've never seen a, a big professional telescope like this before. Um, but we open up the instrument and somebody hands me a screwdriver and says, okay, have at it. You know, I, I'm still <laughs> jet lagged. And, and they just give me the toolbox and say, you got it, kid. Yeah. Uh, so everything worked fine. We, we got we got all the stuck parts moving and, and we took some data and it was just a fantastic experience. What, what did you did, So was it just, you know, making fine tuning adjustments to get the, you know, can you just briefly describe what you did? Yeah, so this was part of uh, when you have a new instrument on a telescope, uh, you do something called commissioning. Uh, and we're seeing this a lot in the news right now because uh, James Webb has launched and everything's opening up and there are a lot of tests uh, that you do. it, And you basically have a checklist where you say, OK, if the instrument's working right, it should be able to do this, that and the other thing. And it's not necessarily you're not doing what I would call science with it. You're not pointing it at a star and, and taking data that's then going to tell you something new about the universe. You're just making sure your measurement equipment works first. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what we were doing. This, this instrument had been built uh, in North Carolina and sent to South America and put on the telescope. Uh, and then we had to make sure all of the, the mechanisms were still turning and make sure that we could point at a star and, and record data the way that we expected we should be able to do. 
You know, as I've been doing, you know, some you know, background research before interviewing you, you know, just started to become aware of, you know, different telescopes. I know you've done a lot of work with the Keck Observatories in Hawaii, the Lick Observatory in San Jose. Is there, I don't know, the world's most famous telescope or the best telescope? Or can you quantify it? You know, does anything come to mind when, I, when, you know, you're talking about the world's great telescopes? Is it like that? Yeah. You know, I think each of these telescopes does have a, a Q score, if you will. Uh, and I think the, the ones that get the most uh, public interaction are probably the space telescopes. Mm. So Hubble, of course, mm-hmm. uh, we see every year we see these fantastic pictures that they make right. for public release. And, and Hubble still does groundbreaking science as well. So those are the ones that the public has the most investment in, in terms of taxpayer money and publicity that goes into that. Uh, and they produce a lot of the most high-profile scientific results. They produce the the prettiest pictures, if you will. But you did mention Keck. That's something, as as members of the University of California community, we're really fortunate to have a partnership in that. And, and as of right now, Keck is uh, the largest optical telescope in the world. And that's, of course, anytime you can claim to have the biggest telescope, uh, then then that counts for something as well. Gotcha. When you say the biggest optical telescope, does that mean where you put your eye up to it and you look through it? Or is that a a, a computer reference? What is that? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I say optical, what I mean is we're using certain wavelengths of light and and optical or visible light. uh, Those are the wavelengths of light that your eyes are sensitive to. So we, we talk about different forms of light, uh, and a lot of people actually don't know this, but we have visible light, which is the light that our eyes can see. There are other forms of light that you're probably familiar with, x-rays, microwaves, radio waves. These are all just different wavelengths or frequencies of light or electromagnetic energy. And so depending on the, the physical process it produces, that light, it, it may come out in one or several of those forms. And so an optical telescope is designed to collect and, and process uh, visible wavelength light. And that's in comparison to, say, a radio telescope. Those are observing radio waves and in many cases uh, are much larger than the optical telescopes. Interesting. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI astrophysicist, Professor Paul Robertson. And we're learning all about planets outside our solar system, also known as exoplanets. And Professor, you we're kind of at the point in your career now where, and I think you had spent time at Penn State, but now you move on to, to UCI in 2018. How did that all come about? Well, UCI uh, as, a, as a department, they, their Department of Physics and Astronomy, recognized, I think, the opportunity that this new field of exoplanets offered. You know, the the whole field, the, the first exoplanet orbiting a star like the sun was discovered in 1995. Uh, so the whole field is only, you know, 20 some years old. Yeah. And so this was something that the department just decided uh, that they wanted to invest in. They wanted to have that research active here 
uh, and something that their students could get involved with. And so around that time, they hired uh, myself and, and a couple of other astronomers who were uh, involved in research projects related to the field of exoplanets. And so that's something that we've started here. And, and it's really exciting to, to be here and to have uh, those other new faculty and to have students who are coming in excited to, to learn about exoplanets and, and get involved with it for themselves. It really is an amazing area. I had no idea that it really is in the infancy of uh, exploration. You mentioned the, the last 25 years or so that you know, the, literally the first planet outside of our solar system was discovered. And now I think there's between four and 5,000 planets that have been identified. Do I have that right? Yeah, the, I, I don't know exactly the right number, and, and it almost doesn't matter because it depends on uh, whether you're counting uh, fully confirmed planets or right. uh, validated planets. And this, again, this gets into terminology that is not worth splitting hairs over, but yeah. it has to do with how confident you are because we observe, we, we find exoplanets by observing these very tiny changes in behavior from the star. Uh, it, it's not like a star where we can just go and take a picture and count the planets. They're, they're too faint and they're too close to these very bright stars. And so they just get lost in the glare. One mental picture you can have is imagine uh, trying to see with your eye a, a firefly that's flying right next to a lighthouse or some other very bright light. That's, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Right. So we rely on this sort of indirect evidence. For example, uh, we look for the star to get a little dimmer if the planet passes in front of it, like an eclipse. Um, and so when we talk about whether a planet is validated or confirmed, we're, we're sort of expressing our level of confidence in the detection of any one planet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what is your expertise in this area? Because I think you just described the transit method, but you actually have a different area that your expertise is. Is that true? That's right. So of the two main uh, methods we rely on to find these exoplanets, uh, I specialize in the second, uh, which is called, uh, sometimes it's called the Doppler method or the radial velocity method, or sometimes just the, the wobble method. And, and what, this, what this relies on is just gravity. Uh, so, so planets orbit a star because of gravity, the, the star's gravity pulls on the planets. Uh, but because of Newton's third law, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So those planets are pulling on the star as well. And so the star will move very slightly in response to the gravitational tug of a planet. And if we measure very precisely, again, the, the different wavelengths, the different energies of light coming off the star, uh, what that motion does is it creates a change in frequency. Uh, and the mental picture you can have for this is when you see a, an ambulance or a fire truck screaming down the highway, the, the pitch of that siren changes depending on whether the truck is moving towards you or away from you. And so that just like the sound waves are changing in frequency, uh, the waves of light coming from the star are doing the same thing. So if we can measure that very carefully, then we can pick up on that, that wobble of the star and infer that there's an exoplanet there. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, it started to come to my attention, the description of ultraviolet and infrared. You know, are those the kind of colors that you're looking at, or are they different? Uh, a lot of times, yes. Ultraviolet uh, is difficult because a lot of stars don't produce much ultraviolet light. The, the way this works is everything in the universe glows because it's hot. And when I say hot, I mean, it has some temperature above absolute zero. Uh So so you and I are glowing, Kevin. It's just that uh, (laughs) we we glow in infrared light. You can't see it. Uh, But but this is how night vision cameras work. If I I point a night vision camera at you in the dark, I'm going to see that infrared light uh, that's coming off of you. Okay. Um, And the idea is that the hotter you are, the bluer your uh, light is. is right so hotter stars are are bluer and this is why when you look up at the night sky if if you're at a clear dark site you can see that the stars are different colors there are some that are whiter or yellower or redder Um, and so those redder uh, stars actually have a cooler temperature Hmm. okay so so even though you we called it infrared like if we were, that's, it's infrared because we're, we don't have that much heat, but if we were hotter, we would be ultraviolet or more blue. Is that what? We would be what more mean? blue. I mean, think about when you take a, a fire poker and stick it in the fire, it starts out, you know, it's black or, or silver mm-hmm. and you put it in the fire and it heats up and it starts to glow. It, it'll glow red. And then if it gets even hotter, it'll be kind of white or right, right. Of a bluish tinge to it. So stars are the same way. It just has to do with their temperature. Wow. And that wobble in terms of like the planet going around that star, will it be a constant wobble or does the, will the wobble fluctuate depending on the orbit? Right. So every, every planet will introduce a unique wobble on the star and, and it's periodic, uh, right? This is an orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we think of this and, and the, the basic picture is perfectly accurate. The planet is orbiting around the star, but you, you can sort of imagine these as two masses on either end of a, a seesaw or something. They're, they're actually both orbiting the center of mass, uh, which is usually still inside the star, which is why it wobbles and doesn't you know, full on spin around something. Um, And so the wobble of the star will match the period of the planet's orbit. So, so for a planet like the earth, it takes a year to go around the sun. And so the little wobble that the sun does will take a year as well. And so uh, the planets, uh, their, their orbit will take longer, the farther they are from the star. So when we measure how long that takes, we know how far away the planet is. Uh, wow. and, and furthermore, the, the star will wobble more or less. It will have more or less motion depending on how massive the planet is. So, so a more massive planet, obviously there's more gravity, so it'll pull on the star harder. Yeah. So by measuring sort of the amplitude and the period of the wobble, then we can infer how big the planet is and how far away it is from the star. Wow, that is amazing. 
just it's amazing um you know in terms of orbiting a star do planets ever orbit each other we have not ever discovered i I guess you would call that a binary planet Mm. Um, and and the closest example i could give you of something like that would actually be in our own solar system Uh, So Pluto, which of course has been demoted to a a dwarf planet or a minor planet, has a moon that is uh, actually somewhat similar in size to the planet itself. Mm. Uh, That that moon is called Charon. Pluto, we've learned this in the last few years, Pluto has a few different moons, um, but one of them is is quite big. And and, um, so that's that's an example where we have two sort of planet-like objects that are orbiting each other. Mm. Um, but I think what we really expect based on what we know about how planets form and and the orbital mechanics is that you'll have things like what we see in the solar system. You have planets and then smaller bodies orbiting them. And we would call those moons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to date, there has not been a confirmed discovery of, I guess you would call it an exo moon. So a moon orbiting an exoplanet. Uh, But we think we'll have, uh, opportunities to discover those at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Just as technology advances. Right. As, as new uh, telescopes and instruments come online, uh, you can, uh, one example for how we could do this, for example, is if we could, instead of pointing our telescopes at a star, uh, point the telescope actually at the planet uh, and, and measure the same kind of wobbles from the planet uh, to discover moons that we do uh, with the star to find the planet in the first place. Uh, wow. That's going to require, uh, for example, there, there's a fleet of new telescopes coming online in the next decade or so. Uh, we call them the 30 meter class telescopes. These things, uh, you mentioned the Keck telescopes, those have uh, 10 meter diameter mirrors, which is already gigantic. Uh, but the next step up is to make these things even bigger. And so there, there are three telescopes coming online that have mirrors in the ballpark of 30 meters across. Wow. Wow. Where will those be at? Two of them are going to be, again, in Chile in South America. Uh, and one is actually planned uh, to go on Mauna Kea in Hawaii and, and join uh, Keck and Subaru and some of the other telescopes there. It's It's really a fantastic site. And so... Uh, if, if possible, we want to put all of our best telescopes there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how Hawaii offers a very unique uh, environment. Why is it uh, Hawaii a good place to put these kinds of telescopes? Yeah, Hawaii is kind of uh, one of the places on Earth that's really a sweet spot. Uh, you want to have a mountain so that you're up at high elevation above a lot of the clouds and moisture that uh, tend to wreck astronomy at lower elevations. Um, Hawaii is also in a nice spot in the middle of the Pacific where the atmospheric jet streams that pass over the mountains are fairly smooth and, and that leads to less atmospheric distortion. Uh, you know, when we see stars kind of twinkling, we, we don't really want that. We want everything to be very calm and stable when we make these measurements. And, and the weather is also very good. You have 
uh, I think something like 270 nights a year of clear weather on Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so that's just the right combination. And I should point out uh, Mauna Kea, the, the mountain in Hawaii, is an ancestral site for the indigenous peoples of Hawaii. And, and we're really fortunate to be guests of theirs to conduct these observations whenever we do get to use those facilities. Thank you for mentioning that, Professor. Excuse me, just again, Professor, ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is astronomy professor Paul Robertson, talking all about looking for planets outside our Mars, Saturn, Jupiter solar system and what that might mean to us on Earth. Professor, is the end game of all this research looking for life? on other planets? Yeah, that's certainly it for me. Uh, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, when we find these exoplanets, one of the things that we learn is how far the planet is from the star. And so one of the things that we really focus on is trying to find planets in the so-called, uh, some people call it the Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone. Uh, and that's just the distance from the star, uh, like Earth, uh, where we're just the right distance from the star where the, the planet receives the right amount of starlight that you could potentially have liquid water on the surface. And, and that's the one thing, every life form on earth, uh, a commonality that we all share is that we all depend on liquid water in some amount, some of us more than others. Uh, but when we have, uh, as you said, there, there are already thousands of known exoplanets and, and we expect that we live in a galaxy with billions of them. And so if you're looking for life, if the question is, how do we narrow that search? Where, what's a starting point? Uh, the motto that, that we astronomers have is follow the water. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to find those planets that offer the best bet uh, to have an environment like ours that's conducive to life. And, and then we can potentially uh, make even more sensitive measurements of those planets themselves and, and see if there really is something there. Yeah. Professor, that water issue, when I was younger, I never used to hear about that. You know, you'd kind of hear about Martians and seem kind of like there would be kind of cliche-ish kind of examples. And, and then it seemed like, I don't know if it's the last 20 years or so, that all of a sudden the water became the identifiable factor. Is that true or, or no? It's not true. <laughs> I think that that's true. And I should state up front that I'm not a biologist. I'm not a chemist. So, so a lot of this is above my head. But it's my understanding that liquid water is the one thing um, that every life form we've ever identified on Earth requires at least some small occasional input of liquid water to support its cellular processes. So that's the one thing we know uh, to look for. Gotcha. And I know in terms of this, you know, wobble method of identifying exoplanets, that you're an expert at two methods inside of that. And I think one of them is called FPF, Habitable Zone Planet Finder. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so that's HPF, the Habitable Zone Planet Finder. And, and really what it breaks down to is not really two different uh, techniques. It's, it's just two different categories of stars. So, so HPF is interesting uh, because we talked about uh, optical light and infrared light. HPF 
makes measurements of this wobble effect using infrared light. And that's really interesting because uh, one thing that the, your audience might not uh, know is that we think of the sun as a typical star, but in many ways it's not. Um, most of the stars in the galaxy are not sun size, but they're quite a bit smaller. They're half the size of the sun or less. Uh, and what that means is that their, their nuclear furnaces are not nearly as powerful and, and they're much cooler in temperature. And so, so we talked about how your, your temperature controls what wavelengths of light you produce. Uh, these stars, and we call them red dwarfs or M dwarfs, they produce most of their light in the infrared. And so uh, by using an instrument that targets that infrared light, uh, we can make more sensitive measurements um, of, of planets around those stars and potentially look for uh, a population of potentially habitable planets. Uh, most of the um, stars closest to the sun, just because these are the most typical stars, uh, most of the closest ones are these small, uh, low temperature stars. And so if you want to talk about maybe looking for life uh, in the nearest star systems, then, then this is something that you have to be able to do. Mm, interesting. So when we look at the night sky here in Irvine, that those stars are typically half as bright as our sun? Is that true? No, this is, this is kind of um, <laughs> the great counterintuition. <laughs> the closest stars are these red dwarf stars, but not one of them is visible to the unaided eye. Uh, even the closest star to the sun, Proxima Centauri, uh, is a very low mass red dwarf star, and you cannot see it with your unaided eye. When you look out at night, the stars you see are the right combination of uh, pretty close by and very bright. So what you're seeing when you look out are stars like the sun or brighter. Um, they're so much brighter than these little faint red dwarfs that it, it makes up for the added distance. Wow, interesting. When we're looking you know, in our local sky at night, how far is the farthest star? Like, you know, do you have any sense of that? Like with, that we can see with our naked eye, like, you know, is it 10 light years away or do you have a sense of that? Yeah, it's a little more than that. Um, and, and I'd have to, that, that's a, a good trivia question that I actually don't know the answer to. Um, but I would say typically you're talking about stars between say 10 and a hundred light years away. Which is a tiny fraction of the galaxy. We, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, which is this giant galaxy that's about 100,000 light years across. And so we're seeing stars. And, and when we look for exoplanets as well, we, we need the closest, brightest stars to even allow us to make these very sensitive measurements. So we're, we're limiting ourselves both what we can see with our eye and, and what we focus a lot of our telescope time on, uh, on this tiny bubble of stars that we call the solar neighborhood. Uh, so these are just the, the first stars that we would encounter on, on any interstellar trip out of the solar system. Wow. Professor, you know, with the recent launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, 
can you give us any updates? How is the unfolding going? Is is everything going well up to this point? Yeah, all reports are positive. It sounds like everything is unfolding. The the solar shield unfolded. The mirror segments have unfolded, um, and so that's that was really the scary thing to me was can you get this uh, massive shield yeah. unfurled? So this is. Uh, something that we need to keep the telescope very cold. Uh, this telescope, again, is targeting infrared light, and you need to knock out any sources of background heat. That's mm. really what infrared light is, is, heat. And so you need to block out the earth. You need to block out the sun. All of those bright sources behind you need to go. And so we do that with this massive shield that's made up of uh, Lay, many layers of reflective material, kind of like uh, if you buy a, a mylar balloon from the grocery store, that, that's kind of what the material is like. Yeah. Uh, but the shield is the size of a tennis court. And so getting that unfurled in space without ripping it or getting it stuck was, uh, that was a real gut check for everybody involved, I, I think. I bet. I mean, geez, I'm not even involved with them. Like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe they're doing that. Um, yeah, I think there were a lot of antacids consumed over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> now, will you be involved with the James Webb Telescope? Yeah, I expect I will be. I don't have any observing programs in the queue presently. Uh, and what I'm doing right now is more uh, trying to discover and, and characterize the exoplanets that might make the best targets for James Webb. You know, you, you already, you have to have some sort of sense of, uh, do we think that this exoplanet will have an atmosphere? Uh, is it uh, in the right kind of orbit and, and with the right level of atmospheric height that, that the James Webb telescope can actually make a useful measurement? And so that's what we're doing right now. And then we'll take some of those best candidates and actually put in a proposal and say, hey, we'd like to actually observe this planet. Gotcha. What about, is there something called space pirates? <laughs> yeah, so so James Webb has had a, a difficult journey and it didn't start uh, when the rocket got off the ground. Um, this was something that the team was very concerned about because the the telescope and all the instruments on it were assembled here in California at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. Uh, but it launched out of French Guiana in South America. Um, and this was the part of the European Space Agency's contribution to the project. They, they handled the launch, so we had to get to their launch site. And the only way to do this was to put the telescope on a, a shipping container on a boat and take it um, you know, out in the Pacific Ocean through the Panama Canal, and we had to get into the Atlantic. And of course, going through the Panama Canal, you create a bottleneck. There, there aren't too many places the ship can go. Um, and the team was concerned uh, that an enterprising uh, pirate might recognize, hey, this is something that we've put uh, a $10 billion uh, investment into. And while there's not a very active secondary market for space telescopes of questionable provenance, um, if they were to hold this thing hostage and ransom it, you know, the U.S. government says they don't negotiate with terrorists, but I think that a pirate might be willing to, to call that bluff. And so uh, there was a lot of conversation of maybe they would do a decoy ship. Uh, there was a lot of secrecy around 
the exact date they were going to do the ship. And I think they even had uh, like military escorts along the way. So it was a whole uh, whole operation just to get it to the launch site. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Professor, I heard you, I think, mention uh, Proxima Centauri. When I yes. was growing up, and that's the nearest star to our solar system, is, is that that's true? right. Yep. Well, when I was a kid, I used to hear about Alpha Centauri. Is, is that the same thing or is that different? It's essentially the same thing. So Alpha Centauri is a binary star system. So there are two stars uh, orbiting each other. Uh, and then Proxima Centauri is what we call a tertiary. So, so you can imagine the two Alpha Centauri stars in their own little orbit around each other. And then Proxima kind of rings around the outside as a third companion. Mm. And so that whole, that whole collection of three stars is a, a gravitationally bound system. It's all a package deal. Mm. And Proxima just happens to be the closest of the three to Earth. But we're kind of splitting hairs. They're all yeah. about four light years away. And you can't see Proxima, but you can, if you ever go to the Southern Hemisphere, you can see the Alpha Centauri binary with your unaided eye. So that's kind of cool to actually be able to look up and see our, our closest stellar neighbors. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI astronomy professor Paul Robertson. We now focus on just how many stars are in our own Milky Way galaxy. It's 100 billion, or at least, stars in the galaxy. Okay, so there's 100 billion stars in our galaxy. How many galaxies are in our universe? Do you have any estimate of that? Yeah, so I, I can kind of help you picture this, I think. The, the numbers are, it kind of scales the same way. So imagine, to, to get a sense of how many stars we have in the galaxy, uh, there's sort of one star in the galaxy for every grain of sand on the surface of the Earth. Um, and then we think in the observable universe, there are about as many galaxies as there are stars in Milky Way. And of course, each of those has another 100 billion or so stars. Uh, and so we are uh, kind of littered with stars and, and each of them, we think, hosts their own planet systems. It's, it's, a, it's a busy place. <laughs> Professor, you're blowing my mind. I'm just like, what, what, what? But yeah, people get really overwhelmed by this, and you can understand why. <laughs> How do you distinguish when you're looking out into space? So you have, you know, you have some stars closer, you have some stars farther away, and, you know, and they're all, you know, it's. I mean, I know it's three dimensional, but you know, it's sort of two dimensional. I, I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? How do you figure out which star is in which galaxy at which depth? Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, are, are you sort of asking how we get oriented in all of yeah, this? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Well, so, so within the Milky Way, which is kind of where my research goes, again, we, we focus on the, the closest and brightest stars. We can sort of get a sense for where everything is just by recognizing that all of these stars and these uh, nebulae of gas, they're all orbiting the center of the Milky Way, just like uh, the planets in the solar system orbit the sun. And so we can kind of measure the motions and positions of the stars and kind of understand where that is 
in this context of orbital motion uh, within the galaxy. Mm. Uh, but then moving beyond that, it, it's kind of just, you have to make a map. You again, um, you, you do these campaigns where you're taking images of different sections of the sky and we say, oh, well, there's a galaxy there and it's, it's this far away and uh, it's, it's this massive. So it contains however many stars. Um, but this is, I guess, really getting into the heart and soul of astronomy is really trying to place ourselves in this kind of bafflingly big universe and just getting a sense of how far away something is can often be a really difficult measurement. And so it's like being an early explorer out on the ocean and, and not even knowing what you're going to run into sometimes. Yeah. Do you have any sense of, is the Milky Way galaxy an average size galaxy? Is it a pretty big galaxy? Is it a little galaxy? Can you measure it like that? I, I would call the Milky Way a full-sized galaxy. And really putting it in context, we can't even do this in three dimensions. We have to do it in four dimensions, where the fourth dimension is time. And, and we rewind to the Big Bang and we say, well, how did mass start to get assembled in the universe into galaxies? And, and we have this picture where uh, you start out with small galaxies and they kind of run into each other to form bigger galaxies. And so what, what's a, a big galaxy sometime in the distant past might not compare uh, to what we have presently in the universe today. But the Milky Way is a pretty good sized galaxy. And, and we know that in, in part because, again, just like there are planets orbiting the stars, our Milky Way is being orbited by a collection of what we call dwarf galaxies. So these are smaller collections of gas and dust that do their own little orbit uh, around the Milky Way. And, and every few uh, million or billion years, the Milky Way will just eat one of these things and incorporate its stars into the bigger galaxy. This is another thing where those of you listening, if you, if you get a chance to travel to the Southern Hemisphere, you've got to try to find a dark spot and see the Magellanic Clouds. Uh, these are the two biggest of the dwarf galaxies that orbit the Milky Way. Uh, and in a good site in the south, you can see these with, with the unaided eye. And they, they kind of just look like fuzzy white splotches on the sky. But when you appreciate that you're looking at uh, another galaxy with your own eyes, it's, it's kind of amazing. Wow. And we can't see an example of that in the northern hemisphere? Unfortunately not. If you are in a really good site and you've got good eyes... Sometimes a year, you can maybe see the Andromeda galaxy, which is the closest, uh, again, sort of full-size galaxy to the Milky Way. Uh, but that's a, that's a tougher spot, and you're better off with binoculars. Yeah. Any particular places in the Southern Hemisphere to look for these galaxies you're talking about? Well, you know, anywhere with a clear sky. I've had good luck both in South America and in Australia and New Zealand. So really anywhere you can get far enough south that you're starting to see some of these southern constellations and stars and galaxies that, that we can't see from here. Yeah. Is there any scientist, astronomer right now that, I don't know, is, is recognized as like, well, you know, he's the tops in the field or I don't know. Is that, is that kind of ridiculous to even think about like that? Uh 
Yeah, that, it's tough to answer that. I, yeah. There are certainly people who are experts or, or the top people in their niche that they cover in their research. Uh, now, of course, we've had sort of a breakthrough in the last couple of years where we've had a couple of astronomers actually get recognized with Nobel Prizes, uh, which is that that's something that we kind of wondered if it was ever going to happen. They, a lot of times the Nobel goes to more kind of breakthrough physics, you know, understanding the atom, but there have been Nobel Prizes awarded for the discovery of exoplanets, uh, for the discovery of gravitational waves, and actually University of California, we, we now have a Nobel laureate astronomer, Andrea Ghez, uh, who did a lot of work to help us observe and understand the, the giant black hole that sits at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And is she at UCLA? She's at UCLA, yes. Yeah, yeah. And do you ever work with her professionally or just, you know, are your areas so separate that you don't? Yeah, we uh, we don't really collaborate. Our, our research areas are, are quite different. And um, so we would maybe run into each other, for example, at the, the Keck science meeting where everybody who uses Keck gets together and, and shares their results. But um yeah, that's that's kind of the the level that we would interact at. Gotcha. And how about in terms of your you have a lab, right? I have a, a lab in the sense that you know I have a group of students and postdocs who who work on research with me. I, I don't have a, a lab presently where we're um, building hardware, for example. Gotcha. And everybody's working through computers. Is that is that right? Right. So you had asked earlier about, do we look through an eyepiece? And, and that's really not most, most of these big professional telescopes aren't even equipped with eyepieces. Everything gets recorded <laughs> digitally onto a computer. And so everybody's taking that data and analyzing it and uh, making all kinds of measurements and figures and, and eventually publishing uh, whatever we discover to the world. Gotcha. And I wanted to mention the HPF apparatus that you work with, that is actually quite a big, I mean, it's, it's about the size of a small SUV. I mean, it's, it's a major piece of equipment. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's really large. And, and when you look at pictures of it, most of the time, what you're seeing is the outer shell of the vacuum chamber. So, so the, what's going on there is that when we measure these wobbles from the stars, we record the light, like you said, digitally on a computer, and it works a lot like a very, very expensive, very precise version of the digital camera in your cell phone. And what I mean by that is we record the light on these individual pixels. But the, the amount of wobble that we're trying to measure from a star, uh, this shows up on our digital camera, uh, not even as a shift of a single pixel, uh, but for a, a planet like the Earth orbiting a star like the sun, we would measure that wobble at the level of five or six silicon atoms within a single pixel of that digital camera. And so anything that would move the instrument that much and confuse our measurements has to be controlled. Uh, so we put it in this giant vacuum chamber, which is what you see. We, we take all the air out. Uh, so there's no turbulent air. Uh, the temperature is not changing. We control the temperature to better than a thousandth of a degree. 
Uh, these are the kinds of uh, what we call systematics that we're trying to take out so that we're sure that when we measure the wobble of the star, that we're measuring the wobble of the star and not the, the ground in the lab moving around. Wow. Do you have any ideas for new apparatus, new, new testing methods? Well, we're always thinking about that. And we, in the last year or so, uh, we've gone online with an even newer instrument than HPF. We, we call it NUID, N-E-I-D. And that's a, an even more precise instrument for measuring these wobbles. And um, that is, in some senses, something that we're using right now to, to discover new exoplanets. But it's so much more precise than instruments that have come before that that's our opportunity to say, okay, how far can we push the limits with this? Uh, and then when we reach those limits, what is it that's holding us back? We don't even know necessarily, um, but that will tell us, hey, if we can make progress on, on these areas of the technology, then the next thing we build will be even better. And that's just the sort of the scientific method of constant refinement and improvement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Professor, we, we only have a, a minute or so to go. Is there such a thing for you as an astronomy hero? Did you have a hero when you were growing up? Is it, was it like that for you? Uh, I suppose I've had people that I look up to. One of my scientific heroes is, is not actually an astronomer, but uh, a doctor, uh, Jonas Salk, um, who, of course, invented the polio vaccine. And, and gave up the opportunity to profit off of it. And it was just so important to him that this get to as many people as possible that he, he didn't patent it. And, and to me, that's, that's just an example of conducting scientific research truly for the greater good and, and trying to disseminate that to as many people who would benefit from it as possible. And of course, you know, with all of us dealing with this global pandemic that's changed life in so many different ways, it's, it's maybe an especially poignant story to, to keep in mind. Very, very well said. How about adversity, Professor? You know, when you reach to your level, I think sometimes people think it's like, oh, well, the person was just a natural, you know, they, they you know, are smarter than everybody else. I, and I know you are really smart, but, you know, did, did you feel like, was there any point in particular that you're like, yeah, that was a rough period that I just had to grind through, or does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say uh, to any uh, young people who are listening to this and, and interested in getting into astronomy, it's perfectly natural to have those moments. I, I mentioned I have a math major uh, from my undergraduate institution, and the reason for that was that I went to the University of North Carolina and I enrolled in physics classes my first semester and I went in and I just felt completely lost. I, I could not keep up. Uh, there were students from uh, some of the, the bigger cities who I maybe had had more opportunities to prepare and they were just leaps and bounds ahead of me in terms of their academic preparation. And I basically took a semester or so and, and stopped taking physics classes because I felt like I had to beef up on my math skills a little bit. And so I took the time and I did that and, and I went back into the more advanced physics classes and I, I felt much more comfortable. 
but it was, it was really a grind. Uh, and I think I, I feel like it took me probably two years uh, to get caught up to my peers at the same grade level. So, so you're not always just smarter than everybody else. Uh, it's, it's sort of a matter of dedication and, and really being willing to be uncomfortable and push through it. The same thing when I went to Penn State to help build HPF. I'd never been in a situation like that. I, I showed up and uh, somebody handed me a voltmeter and said, we've got a problem with this piece of equipment, fix it. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think, um, some advice that I got from a, a mentor and, and this is maybe cliche, but, you know, try to do something every day that makes you uncomfortable and don't be afraid to be in new territory. That's how you learn. That's how you, you get better. Wow. Thank you for those words, professor. It's been a great exploration and the time went really fast, but boy, very exciting. Please would love to hear more about this in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you again to UCI astronomy professor Paul Robertson for taking us on this extraordinary tour of the Milky Way galaxy and beyond. As they say on Star Trek, going where no man has gone before in this final frontier. And kudos to all our campus astronomers. We can't wait to see what you discover next. And thank you to astronomer Mark Nussbaum and JPL NASA scientist Jennifer Burt for help with preparation for this interview. To hear an encore of this interview and any other past episode of UCI Conversations, simply go to www.bostonmeyer.com and as always, comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. You have been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, reminding you to get vaxxed and boosted and wear that N95 mask. We are all in this together. We will see you next week. So long, everybody. And now take it away, Piano Man Fred Kaplan with Signifying.